Welcome to Reinventing Home. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews. Today, our topic is home is a movable feast, what it means to pull up roots and settle down in a new and unfamiliar place. For this podcast, Coming to America, I'm talking with celebrated novelist Isabel Allende about what home means to an immigrant and what it also means to live in the land of the imagination. Her latest book is called The Soul of a Woman, and her first novel, House of the Spirits, brought her international acclaim. Isabel, thank you for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Valerie, for having me. It's a pleasure. In your new book, The Soul of a Woman, you talk about your childhood homes on several different continents. You've lived in Peru, Chile, and Lebanon. What was it like moving around so much? I think that I have a sort of foreigner trauma. I have always been a foreigner, and I have never felt really comfortable in a place except for very few years when I was a newlywed mother in Chile. We had a little prefab house where for a few years I felt that that was really home. I belonged there, and I was never going to move again. But as a child and as a young adolescent, we were moving all the time. We were leaving behind countries, friends, sometimes a language. And I was shy, and a very angry and rebellious child, but, but also very shy socially, so awkward in a way. It would take me a long time to integrate into a school, make friends. So the feeling of being a foreigner was also reinforced by the fact that my house was pretty dysfunctional in many ways. My mother and my stepfather were passionately in love, but they didn't fit together. And there were horrible fights. Plus, I was living with a a stepsister who was a very difficult child and eventually developed a few mental problems. So I retreated into books mostly. So your imagination became your home very early on. According to my mother, as soon as I started speaking, I started telling stories and I loved to read. So reading was like a a form of escaping, but also it was a universe inside my head that kept me safe. Did you move a lot because your father was in the diplomatic service? Yes, because my stepfather was a diplomat. My father was also a diplomat. And he abandoned my mother stranded in uh, in Peru with two babies in diapers and, a, and an infant. She returned to Chile and lived several years with her father. So I grew up in my grandfather's house. And where did you get your love of literature? From my my grandfather, not so much, but I had an uncle, Uncle Pablo, who collected books. So the house was full of books, piles of books on the floor, under the beds, in the closets, everywhere. But they were not children's books. And no one was really paying any attention to the children. I grew up with mild neglect, which is a wonderful form of growing up because nobody, nobody messes around with you. Nobody really cares. And so I I read whatever I could put my hands on. And eventually, I found in the basement of my grandfather's house a green metal trunk that was full of books. Jack London, Mark Twain, Dickens, 
And later I found out that the initials on the trunk, T-A, were the initials of my father, Tomas Allende. And that was his legacy. That's what I inherited from him. That trunk full of books. That's a beautiful story. He left you the tools of your trade as a writer. Yeah. (laughs) After the military coup in Chile, you had to pack your bags, leave home, and flee to Venezuela overnight. How did you cope? Very badly at the beginning because, as I told you, I loved my little home. It was a tiny prefab house with hatch on the roof. Everything was like a dollhouse in it. There I had my children. It was the first years of my marriage when I was still in love with my husband. I thought that my life was perfect. I adored my job as a journalist. And then we had the military coup, and in 24 hours, everything changed in my country. And soon after that, I had to leave because I got involved in some resistance that was, of course, very dangerous at the time. And so I eventually left, and neither did my husband. He closed the house with everything it contained and left with the kids with the idea that we, we had the key, we would go back to our home. And this is interesting because many refugees leave with the key of their homes, with the idea that one day they will go back. And the average time a refugee spends away from home is between 17 and 25 years. Many never return. And they always keep the key. In Venezuela, you began to write House of the Spirits. And one of the most memorable scenes in that book has a dancing table in it where seances are held. I know you had a similar table in your childhood. Valerie, you have sat at that table many times (laughs) (laughs) during our prayer group. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. That was a table where my grandmother experimented with telepathy, with moving objects without touching them, with calling the spirits and paranormal stuff. So I grew up with the seances. I don't remember seeing the table moving. Everybody says it did move. But let me tell you, you've seen the table. It's pretty heavy. It needs two men to move the table. So I don't know if that is part of the legend or if it is really true. This is an enormous piece of furniture. How did you manage to hold on to it all these years? When we left, my mother had the table in Buenos Aires. Then the table ended up with my brother Pancho, and then Pancho sold it to somebody. Years later, my mother returned to Chile, and she bought the table back, and I (laughs) bought the table from her and brought it all the way to California. So this table, I mean, if we add the value of the traveling to the table, it would be its weight in gold. Do you feel that your memory of a place grows stronger the longer you're away from it? I think that in my case, I don't know if everybody feels the same way, but I cannot trust my memory. It gets confused with imagination. Uh I think that the process in the brain between imagination and there's no line between imagination and memory, really, because everything is subjective. Everything that we remember is subjective. So how much... Do we omit in our memories? How much do we highlight? How much do we invent? When I was writing The House of the Spirits, I exaggerated 
everything that I remembered. So the members of my family appear in the book, but the house of my grandfather was never as big and grandiose as the house in the book. But I can remember that as I was writing and inventing and imagining, I also had the strong feeling of nostalgia, the feeling that I had lost so much that now in the page I had the opportunity to recover everything I had lost. It must have been a very healing experience writing that book. Absolutely. Healing and fun. I have never been able to write with that innocence, that freedom. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what the book industry was. I had never read a book review in my life. Most normal people never do. And I knew nothing about publishing or about books, except that I like to read. So when I started writing, I didn't know if it was a memoir, if it was a letter to my grandfather, because it began as a letter, or a novel. I didn't care. I just sat down in the kitchen every night and just typed. You've had so many homes over the years. I'm wondering if there are a few things you just can't live without when you get to a new place. Well, first, photographs. I want photographs of the people I have lost and the people that are far away. And I always want to have a good bed. That's important for me. And not much more, you know. I have lived in very small spaces with very few things in a large, large house that, I, that my second husband, Willie, built, almost a mansion, when we divorced, I just gave away everything and sold the house, and that was that. I don't even remember what was inside the house. However, I do remember a few things from my first home, the little prefab house in Chile. I remember everything from that house. I could draw it if I had any talent for drawing. Well, that was the very first home you made for yourself. Yeah, it was perfect. You've done so many wonderful projects with your foundation. I wonder if we can talk a bit about how you're helping other women find a sense of home. Yeah, the, the idea of the foundation was to invest in the power of women and girls. Because I've been a feminist all my life, and all my life I have worked for women and with women. I know them very well. And I know the needs of women, how we feel unsafe in the world, and what is that can make us feel better and more empowered. So the foundation invests in those things that are really essential for women. First, protection against violence and exploitation. Second, control over your, your body and your fertility, so health care. And that includes reproductive rights. And then you have to have the capacity to work and support yourself. Because if you depend economically, you are always submissive and you are always vulnerable. There's no feminism without economic independence. So education and preparing women with skills is very important. And among the 100 projects that we have, we have several that empower women who are at high risk. And in the case of Thistle Farm, it's a wonderful idea that started in Tennessee with a house for women who were coming out of prison. 
most of those women had been in prison for drugs or prostitution or some minor crime, minor thing, but they lose everything, including their children. When they come out, it's very hard to get a job. They don't have a home. They don't have a family who wants them. And if they go back to the street, they will end up in the hands of the same pimp who exploited her before and abused her. So the idea of providing a home for these women is like a safe haven for them. The project is called Thistle Farm. Thistle is a plant that is very resilient. And the hardest the conditions are, the stronger the plant is. And so these women live, several of them in a home, set up their own rules. There is no policing of anything. The only rules are no drugs and no violence. And they can stay there for up to two years. Some of them are able to reunite with their children, to get a job, to get back to life and back on their feet. Sometimes, unfortunately, it happens that the pimp shows up again and everything goes to hell. But that's not often. Most of the time, they are safe because they have a safe home. And they have each other. They become a family. But we have other projects also that, that help women find housing. We are working a lot with immigrants at the border. You know, on the other side of the world, there are refugee camps. Thousands of people living in subhuman conditions. So I feel very responsible, being an American citizen, to try to help those people who have no home, who live in tents, have you been able to help the children who were separated from their families? Yeah, we are making some progress. There is an organization called KIND, Kids in Need of Defense. You know that any criminal, serial killer, that goes to court has, by law, the right to have an attorney appointed to defend the case. But it's not the case of immigrants because they are not citizens. And a child who can be three years old, coming from Guatemala, alone, unrepresented, goes to court holding a, probably a doll and doesn't know where she is, what is this thing, what language they are talking, crying because her mom is not there. And so there are 40,000 American lawyers, mostly women, who work pro bono to represent minors in court. That's one of the many projects that we try to support. You're bringing up another important topic, and that's how women create a sense of home for one another. Yes. I always say women alone are vulnerable. Women together are invincible. When women get together, men fret. They, they, they are uncomfortable because probably we are colluding. And yes, we are most of the time, or at least gossiping. But we support each other. I just came up with a book called Soul of a Woman, in which I talk a lot about this, about solidarity among women. We are not rivals. You know what? I would have never been able to do any of what I have done in my life without the support of women. First, my mother, then the nannies that helped bring me up and that helped me bring my children up. Without them, I would have not been able to work outside the home my mother-in-law who lived next door and took care of my kids, an adopted grandmother who lived with us, my agent, the women writers that have inspired me, the feminists, the journalists that taught me the craft, 
my daughter-in-law, Lori, who runs the foundation and runs my life, my daughter, Paula. I mean, what would have I done in my life without all of them? You give your readers strong, empowered women, and then you bring them into that circle of feminism you've created. I get, a, I mean, hundreds of letters. Sometimes I open the, my computer several times a day, and every time there is a long list of emails. And I try to answer each one. For the, the, I mean, the first letter that a person writes, I can't keep an ongoing correspondence, but I try to answer, and I read everything. And most of, of the messages are from women, all ages, from different countries. And it's that sense of empowerment of women, of, of being a sisterhood, of relationships between sisters, mothers, and daughters, between friends. That's important. Let's talk about your literary mentor, Pablo Neruda. In your book, The Long Petal of the Sea, you tell the story of all the artists and intellectuals Neruda managed to bring from Franco, Spain to Chile. How did these people adapt to a new country? Well, they were all Spaniards, mostly from Catalonia, and they were selected by Pablo Neruda. Half of them were workers, laborers, who had some craft, some skill that they, they could teach to Chilean workers. But the other half were intellectuals, professors, musicians, painters, the people that were Neruda's friends, because he was the most recognized poet of his time. And these people came to Chile with the clothes on their backs and nothing else. When they arrived to the first port in the north of Chile, a boat with a couple of people from immigration and a consul went to meet the ship and gave them their first documentation, which was a sort of visa, a sort of passport with a visa to come to Chile. Amazingly, the person who represented the foreign office that stamped the visas was a very, very young junior person from the staff in the foreign office, and that man was my stepfather. If you see today who are the most celebrated artists and musicians and philosophers and astronomers in Chile, they descend from the Winnipeg, from that ship. But there's one thing that is important. When the Winnipeg arrived to the port of Valparaíso, there was a crowd at the port waiting for them with open arms to offer them hospitality, to offer them a country where they would find a new home. And they did find the home. No wonder they gave back so much. Because when they got there desperate and afraid, they were well received. And the day that the ship arrived in Chile was the same day that the Second World War started in Europe, 2nd of September, 1939. Neruda himself later went into exile. And I love the poems he wrote about his socks and his salt shaker, about the little things that make us feel at home. When your mother died last year, was there something of hers you wanted to bring back from Chile, something to remember her by? I brought very, very few things. It's interesting because my mother was a very refined woman, and because she had been a diplomat, she could collect from in, in the world beautiful rugs and silver stuff and 
paintings, art. She had a beautiful, beautiful home. But when she died, I didn't know what to do with all that because my brothers don't live in Chile. They didn't want anything. So I ended up giving it away to different people. The first person that took as much as she wanted was the housekeeper that had lived with my parents for 40 years. And I kept for myself a little porcelain dish that belonged to my grandmother that my mother always had on her night table. So I brought that, and I brought a samovar, a silver Russian samovar to boil water for tea that my mother always had in the living room. And to me, it symbolizes my mother's refinement. It was very seldom used, but it was always there. And I use it a lot. You've had tea at the table of the spirits with a samovar. It's very elegant, and we feel your mother's presence. One of the things I admire about you, Isabel, is that you're always starting over. You start a new book every year on January 8th, and you've recently remarried. What does home mean for you right now? Home is in my books, in the few people that I don't want to live without them. My son, my husband, my daughter-in-law. And those are the essential people in my life. And I don't count my grandchildren, although I adore them, because each one has his or her own life. And they are not close anymore. They were very, very close. I saw them every single day when they were growing up. But now I don't. So I, I don't, I let them go in a way. What do you like best about this stage of life? Oh, the freedom. I love this stage of life in which I don't have to be nice to anybody except the people and the dogs that I love. I don't have to pretend anything. I don't have ambitions or unfulfilled dreams or self-doubt. Nothing of that that tormented me when I was younger. I don't care what people think about me anymore. I just like myself more. I can love with Roger without any expectations or in a very free way, just because. You're at home in your own self and you're at home in your own life. I think that's the point. I am finally at home in my own skin, finally. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Isabel. It always is. Thank you, my dear. Thank you very much.